Coca-Cola's profits, get this, they were doing a tidy $4 billion a year when he came in. Not bad, right? Under his leadership, they went from $4 billion a year to $150 billion a year. Just try to get your head around how much money that is year after year after year. Roberto Goizueto was passionate about Coca-Cola. He said in an address at a, uh, a business leaders meeting in Chicago, he said, a billion hours ago, human life appeared on earth. A billion minutes ago, Christianity appeared. A billion seconds ago, the Beatles changed music forever. And a billion Coca-Colas ago was yesterday morning. Isn't that crazy? Makes sense, though. $150 billion. Yeah, okay. I guess that sort of adds up. A billion Coca-Colas ago was yesterday morning. And then he followed it up with this. He said, the thing that we're trying to figure out at Coca-Cola is, how do we get a billion Coca-Colas ago to not be yesterday morning, but to be this morning? That guy's passionate about Coca-Cola, is he not? I mean, I, I like Coca-Cola. I don't know if I could get that passionate about it, because in the end, it's sugar and it's water and probably some other chemicals that shouldn't be ingested, but it's primarily sugar and water. I don't know if I could get that passionate about it, but Roberto Goizueta was pumped about Coke, and under his leadership, they actually went, to, uh, went on to you know, dominate the world of soft drinks. Sorry if you're a Pepsi lover, but you're not even close. Uh, and they were actually named by Fortune Magazine the most admired company in America. He was passionate about Coke. And as I, I read some things about him this week, I was kind of reflecting on it. I thought to myself, if he could get that passionate about sugar water, and he could accomplish so much with that passion about sugar water, what could we do if we had a passion for what Jesus called living water? John 7:38. Jesus said, get this now, that his presence would be like a fountain of living water flowing from within a person. Now, if that's true, imagine what we could accomplish with the same kind of passion for living water. I mean, sugar water's great, don't get me wrong, but living water is way more impressive. But here's the, uh, here's the state of affairs in America. In America, uh, right about uh, one out of every eight to 10 churches is growing. Uh, somewhere right around 10% uh, is actually growing. The other 90% are either in plateau or in decline. Now, it's not a very exciting picture, but that's just kind of the reality that we, that we live with. Um, I'm happy to be able to say that on days when there's not a snowstorm, we happen to be in the first group that are growing, so I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm glad to be able to tell you that. But most of them are not experiencing that, and I have some personal theories about why. Uh, I think probably everyone has an opinion about why, or a lot of people have an opinion about why. Uh, if you do, I just want to say right now, before you blurt it out, I probably disagree with your theory. Uh, it's not personal. But my opinion generally is not really worth much, but in this particular arena, it's a fairly educated opinion. So I want to tell you what, what my theory, my opinion, about why most churches in America are in plateau or decline is. I think that most churches in plateau or decline are struggling with a mission problem. Not a style problem, not because they aren't cool anymore, because guess what? What's cool today will be really laughable in five years. Uh, I'm sorry to say. Uh, it's not a style problem, and it's not a, it's not a programmatic problem, like we, we gotta be more well-administered. I don't think that's the problem. I think it's fundamentally, primarily, a mission problem. 
And what I mean by that is, if you have no target, you're going to hit it every time. You're going to nail it. But most churches struggle by not having a clear sense of mission. Now, uh, get this, okay, that's on a, a gathered up church level, but I think that's also true on a scattered church level. I think most Christians, individual Christians who are experiencing a spiritual plateau or spiritual decline, you ever, you ever felt that way before, just kind of dried up, not very passionate uh, about the gospel, not very passionate about God's work in your life, I think most Christians who are in spiritual plateau or decline have a mission problem. Not so much a discipline problem, not so much a uh, need-to-be-fed problem or a church problem, but a mission problem. And here's why I say that, because if you have a mission, right, a picture of a preferred future, a target, something you're working to get towards, you're going to naturally have passion about getting there, right? Uh, my friend Dennis here recently had a mission to start a business with his partners, and you didn't have to work hard to have passion to get there. The passion came. Uh, the passion follows naturally from a sense of mission. Well, the opposite is also true. If I have no mission, if I have no picture of what a preferred future might be like, then my passion is going to shrink. In my personal life, spiritually speaking, if I have no sense of mission, no sense of purpose, my passion is going to start to wane and my soul will feel dry. I think many of us can probably relate to that and understand what that's like. So here's what I want to accomplish in the next few minutes. I want to talk about our God-given mission, sort of define that. And then I just want to offer a few ideas that might just uh, stir up a little bit of passion for accomplishing that mission. So consider with me these, uh, these words of Jesus. Many of you will be familiar with them. They're, they're some of Jesus' last words, his marching orders, if you will, to his followers. Right at the end of Matthew's gospel, it's the last thing that Matthew records from Jesus' life. We know it as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I love the last sentence. He says, I'm with you always, to the very end. To the very end of the age, I'm going to be with you. Now, I'm sure none of you has ever done this. Uh, so I'll just say for me, and you can just take pity on me because you're above this, I'm sure. Uh, sometimes in life, when I'm faced with decisions, I just get paralyzed. Like, I just keep going around this cul-de-sac, like, asking the same question, God, what do you want me to do? You want me to go right? You want me to go left? And it's like, the more laps I make around the cul-de-sac of indecision, the more confused I get. I just start going faster and faster. You ever feel that way? Like, the wheels are just spinning, and you have no more clarity than you had a month ago? What's funny in my life is I feel like God's answer to that question is sitting right here. This is what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. I want you to take my mission, my purpose, my cause, and I want you to carry on my work here on the earth. And sometimes I think, you know, maybe God wasn't really that concerned about which job I took. I, he probably might have been just saying, hey, take the one you want to take, but as you go, make disciples. It's me that gets caught up in that, that cul-de-sac of indecision. Now, here's the thing about making disciples. That sounds like a big task, right? If you've, if you've read the Gospels or you're familiar with them, um, you see Jesus' disciples, you know, Peter, James, John, his inner circle. 
These amazing people, do you know that all but one of them died at really, well, all of them really died a terrible death because of their faith in Christ? Uh, Eleven of them, uh, see, ten of the eleven besides Judas were martyred, and John died in exile so, because of his faith in Christ. So I guess he got off easy by comparison. Um, we read about them and we're like, whoa, I don't know if I can live up to that standard. The truth about making disciples is none of us here is going to do it Billy Graham style, like with a microphone in a stadium full of 10,000 people where we get to tell them exactly what we're thinking. Most of us are going to make disciples one day at a time, one conversation at a time, one gesture at a time, in your workplace, in your home, or with your extended family, in your circle of influences, that's going to happen just day by day as we follow Christ. In fact, some scholars say that this, the first part of that verse where it says, therefore, go and make disciples, could actually be translated, as you go, make disciples. Now, there's almost unanimous agreement about that. That's how most of us are going to do it, as we go through our course of life. Now, listen, on a personal level, Okay, I'm not not talking about like us as a gathered church. I'm talking about us as a scattered church. You, as you go out into your world, if you've found yourself kind of stuck in neutral in life, ever been in that cycle where it's sort of like, okay, well, I'm going to get up and go to my job, and then I'm going to come home and watch the news and shovel in some food, and I'm going to go to sleep, you know, just sort of stuck in neutral, not living with a lot of passion. I want to just submit to you and ask you to consider this possibility It could be that right now in your life, there's a mission problem. There's a mission deficit, a lack of purpose. Now, here's the silver lining about a mission problem. It's an easily solvable problem. It really is an easily solvable problem. I think all of us get in a spot where we're there, but it's a solvable problem. It happens personally. It also happens collectively as a gathered gathered church. As a gathered church family, uh, there's actually a term for it that churches, churches go through. It's called mission drift. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. Um, it happens in churches. It happens in our individual lives. Uh, but I just want to give you an example of uh, how this happened. There was a church I know of that started, it's been a few years now, and when they first started, they were basically just a group of a few families just meeting together with this mission that Jesus had given them to to make disciples, to take the gospel out as they went through life. And so they started meeting, and as they were going about their mission, more and more people started to come and be part of their thing. And so eventually they decided, well, we're going to have to move out of the house, if you will, and, uh, and rent a public space. So they rented this public space where they would bring their stuff in on Sundays and gather and then haul it back out. You know, they didn't have like a permanent home. And they ended up doing that for years and what happened over the course of time was eventually this group of people got to be like four or 500 people, many of them who came into a relationship with Christ for the first time because of the way they were so focused on their mission. Wow, you're, he's excited over there. He's getting pumped up. He's got a sense of mission. Uh, so this church started to grow. Uh, it started to get fairly large. Eventually, they're like a decade in and they're like, okay, we should probably like mature and we have some resources now. So uh, they built a building and they're, you know, yes, it's ours like 24 seven. We can do whatever, whatever we want. And so uh, they have this church that's in this kind of mobile situation and they're putting all of their resources, all of their energy, all of their financial resources, all of their passion into this mission. And the church is just going like this year after year after year. 
Now, it's not about growing a big church. It's about growing the kingdom of God, right? More people in heaven than there was before. That's the idea. And, and they just had this just constant, constant upward trajectory. So they, they get to the point where they're like, okay, let's build this building, and then we can do even more because it's ours. And uh, so they built this building, and uh, this, is, this is the building. They built this building, and, you know, unfortunately, we have a building, like somebody's got to take care of the property, right? Somebody's got to clean up the building. Somebody's got to take care of it. So, so we're just going to take a little bit of our resources and energy out of the, uh, you know, out of the mission bucket, and we're just going to put that over here. But what happens when you got a building? We got to have a Sunday night service right now. That's going to take some energy and some resources. And a few of you are like, I see where this is going. This isn't going to end well. Uh, you know, we're just going to put a little bit of that over here. Just take some from the mission bucket and put it into that Sunday night service. And of course, the natural thing, like if you're going to be in an established church, like you got to have youth group at seven o'clock Wednesday nights, right? I mean, what else would you possibly do? Uh, so we're going to just take some of, some of our manpower, our energy and our resources, and we're, we're going to put that over here in the in this bucket, and, you know, ladies' Bible study, come on. How do you function without one of those? Uh, those, those are cool. I got, I got no problem with that. Let's put that over there. And, um, you know, but if the ladies got one, you got to have a men's breakfast, am I right? How are you going to, oh, wow, we're leaking like crazy. We got to put some, uh, some of that over in there. And uh, pretty soon, by the time everything gets handled, because now you got a church office that has to be open Monday through Friday, everything's in that bucket, and the mission bucket is empty. So here's what happened. This building gets built. Church is trending up. And of course, something new. Everybody likes something new, right? For like a couple months after this building is done, whew, through the roof. But guess what happens to things that are new? They don't stay new very long. And eventually, fairly quickly actually, within a matter of probably less than a year, all of the energy is going into maintaining this, these programs and this building. And within just a couple of years, this church that once was making so many disciples started to decline the other direction because there was no energy left in the mission bucket. And this is what it looks like. When they first started, all of the energy, all of the resource was going out toward the mission. But slowly but surely, all of that energy and resource had to turn inward to take care of their things. And before you know it, the church is headed the opposite direction. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Because we, as a gathered church, have to keep our eyes on the mission. We have to keep our eyes on the mission. Jesus said it right here in a few sentences. We say it like this. We say, helping people know Jesus. We have to keep our eyes on the mission. The mission has to be the thing that determines what we do and what we don't do. Does that make sense? It has to be the dividing line. So I'll give you an example of how this works. Uh, last Tuesday was a holiday, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It also happened to be this weird cultural phenomenon we call Halloween. Uh, so that was going on. Now, uh, you're going you're gonna to probably get a chuckle of this if you grew up in church as I did. Uh, I know what to do on Halloween if you're in church. You have a harvest carnival, am I right? <laughs> the Christian alternative to celebrating Satan by passing out candy. I know I didn't mean to like sound so condescending, but I'm laughing at myself too. Uh, right? Because that's what you do. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I know what you do on Halloween. You have a harvest carnival as the Christian alternative for the church to come and participate in so we're not out, you know, celebrating Satan. So the question we asked a few months ago was, hey, Halloween's going to come. Uh, what should we do? And the question we had to ask about the harvest carnival is, how does that help us accomplish our mission? And the conclusion we arrived at is that, well, it really doesn't. 
So we decided instead uh, that we we're going to set up some fire pits in the parking lot. A few of you came, came and have participated in that. Set up some fire pits in the parking lot, and you probably noticed that we were collecting candy right out here for a while. You really didn't appreciate how much candy that was until it came out of the cage. Um, but we set up fire pits, and we just had this huge sign. It just said candy in a big arrow, like pointing down. Candy here, right? Uh, not elaborate. Much less work than a harvest carnival. And what happened was, I, I don't even know how many of our neighbors came by, but I shook a lot of hands on Tuesday night. I know many of you did. We met a lot of people. Cindy was out in the street holding bags of candy, waving people down. We had so much candy that we filled up a garbage can with what we think was probably about 150 pounds, clean garbage can, uh, 150 pounds of candy, and we had enough candy left over that if Halloween happened again on Wednesday, we could have passed out candy again on the second Halloween. Uh, and so when people came, their kids would open their bag and we'd just be like, <laughs> just showering them with candy. Like, literally one kid, I dropped it in there and it was so heavy, the bag just like fell out of his hand onto the ground. And what was awesome about it was we made connections with people that we wouldn't otherwise have made, and God willing, created some pathways to help them know Jesus to help us accomplish our mission. Those are the kinds of things that mission will allow us to do. But if we're making those decisions on what to do and what not to do based on what we liked years ago, it was significant to me, so we better do that, or this is what we always do, or this is the expectation, um, then we're gonna get in this spot where we end up potentially being champions at things that don't matter. And that seems like kind of a waste, you know what I mean? Uh, I, don't, I don't want us as a church to be really good at something that doesn't matter. So whether as a church or an, is, as an individual, mission drift is just something that we're going to have to watch out for. All kinds of other things might seem important, but the mission is the real target. So let me just offer to you three reminders, three things that might stir up your passion about this mission that Jesus has given us to, uh, to go out and make disciples. If you're like me, it's easy to just get busy doing a bunch of other things. And before you know it, you look back and you're like, I don't think I've really been about that mission, but I'm not really that bothered by it because I've just been busy. Um, as Americans, we like drown all of our sorrows in busyness, it seems like. So, um, so I just want to throw these three things out that might revive some of that passion for you. The first one is this. You have to remember who you are. You have to remember who you are. Let me ask you this question, strange question. Do you know who you are? I mean, I mean, really, do, do you really know who you are? If you were to just try and define yourself, there's this old story about a famous Hollywood actor, a guy named Kirk Douglas. Let's do a straw poll. Let's just divide the generations down the middle here. Who knows who Kirk Douglas is? Okay, that's a stronger percentage than I, uh, than I expected. A couple decades ago, he was one of the most recognizable faces in the world. And he's known for several things, but one of them is he liked to pick up, pick up hitchhikers something that he did often. And he told this story once in an interview of how he picked a guy up on the Malibu Highway. If you've never driven down the Malibu Highway, you really need to. It's beautiful. He picked up a guy who happened to be a, uh, a, a sailor who was leaving. He was hitchhiking back into town near Los Angeles. So he picked him up. And uh, he's driving along, and the guy's just sitting there staring at him. He's just staring at him with like this perplexed look on his face, not saying anything. And finally, after several miles, the guy just blurts out, do you know who you are? <laughs> what a weird question to ask someone. Do you know who you are? But do you? Like, do you, do you have a good handle on your purpose? Do you, do you feel like you have a good handle on why you're here? What truly 
defines you? Do you really know who you are? And I want to just offer you a suggestion. I want to offer you an answer. You're the bride of Christ. That's strange language because we think in terms of male and female. You're the bride of Christ. You're the beloved of God. That is no small role. You're the beloved of God. See, the Bible uses in kind of unusual foreign imagery to talk about marriage, bride and bridegroom. We think man and wife, but the Bible uses this imagery to talk about God and his relationship to the church. You're the bride of Christ. Ephesians 2, 25 says, husbands, love your wives. That's great advice. You should do that. And then it tells how to do that. Just as Christ loved the church, just as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing the church by the washing with water through the word, and to present the church to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Think about the fundamental meaning of marriage. What is marriage? Marriage is the deepest, most significant of all human relationships, uh, more so than any others. There are others that are significant, but marriage is the deepest and most meaningful of all human relationships. And God has said he wants to establish his deepest, most meaningful relationship with you, with us, the bride of Christ. He wants to have his deepest relationship with those who bear his name. Now, here's why it's important that you remember that you're the bride of Christ, that you are the beloved of God. Because if we don't remember that as a church, as a gathered church, we'll end up spending an awful lot of time and energy on things that really aren't that important. We'll end up spending our time and energy on things that maybe we like instead of things that are actually the mission. And if we forget that we're the beloved of God as a scattered church, as individuals, we'll end up living lives that just aren't worthy of being the bride of Christ. Our lives will be too small to be worthy of being the bride of Christ. We'll settle for a small existence with little sense of mission or passion. Don't forget who you are. God wants to enter into his deepest, most meaningful relationship with you. The second thing, remember who you are, remember what you are. There's a guy named Bill Hybels. Um, he's a pastor. He's known for founding the Global Leadership Summit. He says this, one of his most famous quotables. He says, the local church is the hope of the world. You might not feel like you're the hope of the world, but God has said, you're the hope of the world. That might sound like a really crazy burden to bear, uh, but that's what the scripture says. Now, the dissenter might say, actually, Jesus is the hope of the world. Yes to that. But to whom did Jesus hand over the work of carrying on his mission here on the earth? The church. That's you and me. So governments, you know, they redistribute money. All kinds of agencies that do good things. Governments build infrastructure. They make laws. They maintain some semblance of order in some countries. Uh, you know, governments do that. Business, the private sector, it circulates goods and services. It, so, it circulates economic resources throughout our society. Education gives people the chance to rise socioeconomically. But what agency carries the message that could transform the human heart? That could make a greedy person selfless? That could make a bitter person compassionate or gracious? 
What agency carries that message? Who's, who's going to take a hateful person and show them how to be loving? What agency is going to do that? And the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that's been entrusted to the church. That's how that happens. That's the only, that's the only agency that can transform the human condition. And this message that he's entrusted to the church, he said, I want you to go out and make disciples. And now you're the hope of the world. That's what you are. You're the hope of the world. Thirdly, remember who you are, remember what you are. Thirdly, remember why you are. Why you are the hope of the world. Why you are the bride of Christ. Uh, you, ever, you ever look around at the world and just wonder, what are we doing here? Like, like, why are we still here? Or even just, you know, if you're a Christian, maybe thinking to yourself, okay, if God made me and his plan for my life is for me to know him uh, through Jesus Christ and then uh, have Jesus as my savior and then make him the Lord of my life, like if that's God's plan for me, that's what he wants to have happen in my life and it's already happened, then why doesn't God just piece me out of here, right? Why, why doesn't God just take me out? Why would God leave the church here? It seems like if that's what God wants to accomplish, like once we cross that threshold, he should just take us to heaven. That would be, that would be the sensible thing to do. And you could answer that by saying, well, you know, there's some good things here that God wants us to enjoy. Like, I love my family. Hopefully, you love your family. Uh, I love my church. Uh, undeniably, all of you love your church. Uh, I love being here. Like, sometimes I think on Sunday morning, like, this morning's a great example. When we get gathered together and the band, you guys lead us in worship, we just, we sing these songs that I love that are about this gospel that I'm so passionate about and I get to do it with the people that I love, I just think to myself, this is awesome. I want to be part of this. But here's the thing. A guy named Cal Jernigan said that really made sense to me. Everything you love, every good thing you love about this life will be better in heaven. I don't want to step on your toes, musicians, because you're great. But when we go to heaven and the angels of God strike up a song and the tens of billions of Christ followers who've lived throughout human history join in, that's going to be a sight to behold. You guys are great but that's going to be better. I'm sorry. And I know that when Pastor Rick takes the microphone and he cracks open the Bible, it's like sitting at the feet of God. <laughs> I understand that. But when you're in heaven, you're going to be sitting at the feet of God. Everything you love, thank you for that, Scott. Everything you love about this life is going to be better in heaven. So why doesn't God just take us there? Why don't we just stop the madness? Take us there. I love one thing that Rick Warren said. He said, there's only two things you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven. You can sin, and you can tell people about Jesus. You can't do those two things in heaven, because, you know, the sin one hopefully is self-explanatory. You know, in heaven, everything is perfected. It's holy. There's no corruption. There's no sin in heaven. And you can't tell people about Jesus, because he's right there. They can see for themselves. They don't need your explanation. So of those two things, sin and tell people about Jesus... Which one of those two do you think God left you here to do? Hopefully you don't need me to help you figure that one out. If you do, you can talk to Pastor Rick afterward. He'll, he'll dissect that for you. The truth is, you're here, we're here as the church because if God took us out of the world, he'd also be taking the hope of the world. Hope would be gone. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, you're the hope of the world. That's God's mission for us. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 says, 
This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. One of the things we see in that verse is that God desires all people to know him through Jesus Christ. And this is why he established his people, the church. This is why you're here, to make disciples, to help people know Jesus. 2 Peter 3.9 is probably a familiar passage. It, um, it tells us that God is actually delaying his judgment on all of the madness that is this world. He's delaying his judgment on that because he's waiting patiently for more people to come in. That's, that's why he's holding that back. Uh, and you might say to yourself, well, that's cool, but how's that going to happen? Well, you're the hope of the world. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, that's God's plan for you and I to carry on his work. He's waiting patiently for the people we love to come in. He's waiting patiently for people maybe we don't love, but our lives intersect with that don't know him to come in. And he's given us the opportunity to, to help them receive the good news that Jesus is the way. Now, after saying all of that, uh, that may or may not stir up a lot of passion in you for this mission that God has for us. Uh, maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm just a kid. Like, I just want to, like, get through junior high, and then we'll deal with that. Uh, or you may be thinking, I'm, you know, I'm, like, coasting now. I've done all the work, and I'm, you know, I, I get to take it easy now. Um, that, that may or may not stir up a lot of passion for you. But just consider for a second what it must be like for God to have children who are missing, to have children, people that he loves, who haven't come in yet. And uh, I'll just tell you a quick story, true story, that might, um, might help us get our heads around that. A couple summers ago, maybe longer, might have been three summers ago, we were at Brandy's aunt's house for a big family gathering, and she has a big pool, and Brandy's family's totally nutty. I don't mind saying that out loud in public. Uh, so it's just, there's just chaos happening, right? Kids are all playing in the pool. It's like a fish hatchery. There's just kids everywhere. And uh, our two older kids at that point, like they're good swimmers, not worried about them. But our little guy, Ezra, at that time, he hadn't learned to swim yet. You know, it, was, it was a couple of years ago. And uh, so he's kind of just putzing around the shallow end, right? Wah, wah, that's lame. Finally, uh, he's had enough. He's not going to stay down there anymore. And I'm, I'm like up on the deck. I have no idea where Brandy is. I'm up on the deck chit-chatting, but I'm sort of like you know, doing the parent thing. Like, I'm keeping an eye on this situation. Uh, but the truth is, I'm like, my attention is divided. And so I look over at the pool just in time to see Ezra as his feet leave the diving board. He has no idea how to swim. I know full well he doesn't know how to swim. He knows he doesn't know how to swim. So what he did was he got one of those, like, floaty tube noodle things, and, uh, and he just decided he was going to sit on it like a saddle and just launch off the diving board went up, he came down, and when he hit the water, as he plunged under the water, that noodle just went straight up in the air, flew out of his hands, right? Not surprising. That was probably predictable. And so, of course, I know he can't swim. No one else has any idea what's going on, so I did what you would do. I, I'm running down the stairs and across the yard toward, toward the pool, and he's just flapping like crazy. And, uh, and when I'm about, maybe from me to Pastor Rick, like I'm just two or three steps away, his head pops up out of the water. <gasps> He's gasping for air. His arms are flailing around. His eyes are this big. And the look he had on his face was the look you might have if you knew that if something doesn't change immediately, I'm going to die. 
he knew he was in trouble. And, uh, and as he came up, arms flapping, he had sort of made his way almost close enough to the edge that I was able to like just reach out and grab his arm. I pulled him out, and he's coughing up water, and he's huffing and puffing. And you can imagine how I felt. felt like 10 minutes to me. It was probably more like four to five seconds, roughly, that whole process. Uh, felt like forever to me, but I wrapped him up in a towel, and I just, just held on to him, and I said the only thing I could say, the three words I've said thousands of times, don't tell mom. <laughs> just, just so, I was just trying to decide if I should say that or not, probably. <laughs> Probably wasn't a good idea. I'm just kidding. I've only said that like a few dozen times. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But it occurs to me that that panic that I felt might be what it's like for God to have missing children. Now, if you have children, that's not hard for you to connect with. If you have people that you love, you don't have to have kids to connect with that. If people in your life that you love, you get that. That makes sense to you. Was there anything in my life at that moment that I wouldn't completely abandon to save my son? No, of course not. Was there, was there anything that I wouldn't just walk away from, that I wouldn't push to the side to save him from that? Of course not. Why does God keep his church here? Why does he keep us in this world that seems at times crazy, upside down? Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's intimidating. Sometimes you just shake your head and just go, what the heck is going on on this ball that's spinning around, this other ball? What is happening here? Why are we here? God's keeping us here because you're the hope of the world, because he has children who are on the outside. That's his mission, and he's waiting patiently for them to be found. So here's the big idea. God has given us this mission to bring his children home. That's why you're here. That's why the church exists, to bring people inside the kingdom. It's the only possible reason that God hasn't just pulled the Christians out of here and just ended all of this madness. So if we're not pursuing that mission, maybe I'll just ask it personally. If I'm not pursuing that mission, I have to ask myself, what am I doing then? What, what exactly is it that I am doing? And my desire as pastor here. Uh, I know Pastor Rick and I talk about this all the time, is we want to make sure that we're always paying attention to that mission. So here's why all that matters. Here's why all of that just comes together and, and uh, is important for us right here, right now. Because in the near future, uh, Pastor Rick and I are going to stand up here and we're going to ask Center Church to take some risks, to take some next steps to try and accomplish this mission. Uh, if you've been around here for a little while, uh, you know that we've kind of trended upwards, but... Uh, we've planted a church. We're here. Like we, it's, it's established. Um, but, but now we're ready to mature in how we pursue that mission. And here's the thing. As we have these conversations about next steps for us as a gathered church, as a church family, it's not going to make sense unless we remember that we're the bride of Christ. That you and I are the beloved of God. Nothing is closer to God's heart than you. And what's happening right here? And taking those next steps, taking risks, doesn't make sense unless we remember that we're the hope of the world, that the church is God's plan A. There is no backup plan. God doesn't need a backup plan. We are the plan. And taking risky steps doesn't make sense unless we remember why he still got us here. The church is God's chosen mechanism for helping people know Jesus. So this is what I'm asking us to do as friends, as 
brothers and sisters as God has made us into a family, to keep our eyes on that mission. Uh, I think if we went around the room, we'd probably find that we actually all have a bunch of different preferences for how to do church and how to do life. Uh, we're a pretty mixed bag in that regard. But can we agree to just keep our eyes focused on that mission? The priority for us is to not become champions at things that don't matter, but to be champions at the only thing that only the church can do. So we'll flesh that out in the next few weeks, but I just want to put that before you. Uh, what we're doing here matters so much. People that, people that you work with probably don't even know it, but they're counting on you. People who live on this hill probably don't even know it, but they're counting on the church to do the only thing that only the church can do. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you've given us a clear mission. We don't have to wonder what it is. I thank you that you've given us uh, the power to be able to execute it by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would fill us with boldness and confidence and passion as we press ahead.